The first half of the 20th century was a time where it seemed like liberal ideas were going extinct in America. The First World War shattered confidence in liberalism, leading to more extreme ideologies like fascism and communism throughout Europe. Many of the American intelligentsia of academics, pundits and writers agree that capitalism was no longer fit for purpose. By 1933, FDR's New Deal resulted in a new ideological consensus that the state was to manage the economy, at the advice of benevolent experts who knew best. Deeply perturbed by the ever-expanding state, an eccentric alliance of three women dedicated their efforts towards promoting the principles of individualism and laissez-faire economics. The trio consisted of the controversial and outspoken novelist Ayn Rand, who I'm sure you've heard of, the unsung co-writer of Little House of the Prairie, Rose Waller Lane, who I've covered before, and lastly, today's episode, Isabel Patterson, a name that very few people are aware of today, but she had a really big impact. Patterson is really the least discussed in this trio, the three furies of libertarianism they're called, or the three mothers of libertarianism. In her life, Patterson became a renowned writer, literary critic, but then she shifted gears towards politics, becoming a dog critic of any sort of brand of collectivism or statism. Along with Rand and Rosewilder Lane, Patterson kind of helped save liberal ideas from the brink of destruction, and in the process, she brought a renewed energy and enthusiasm for the ideas of individualism and laissez-faire economics. Patterson was, and still is, a pivotal figure in establishing libertarianism as we know it today. Though she is known as Isabel Patterson, she was born with the name Isabel Mary Bowler, taking the name Patterson at a later date. We'll get to that. So Isabel was born on the 22nd of January, 1886, on an island in the middle of Lake Huron in Canada. Isabel, along with her eight siblings, did not live with a silver spoon in their mouths. Her earliest memories were of a rugged frontier lifestyle, alongside her family's attempts to become financially stable. At the behest of her father, her family crossed America's border and began sporadically moving from Michigan to Utah to Alberta in search of lasting prosperity. Isabel didn't have exactly much respect or love for her father, who would force the family to trek across the country every few years. Moving every few years also meant that Isabel didn't really get a huge amount of education, besides some ad hoc schooling and a grand total of two years in a county school. But Isabel was no intellectual slouch. She spent a great deal of her free time devouring books voraciously to further educate herself. And so in this kind of life, Isabel leapt at a chance to become independent, leaving her family ranch as a teen to work a clerical job back in Canada in the city of Calgary. Throughout her teenage years, she worked as a waitress, a stenographer, a bookkeeper, and even assistant to the lawyer and later Canadian Prime Minister, Orby Bennett. By 1910, at the age of 24, Isabel married a Canadian real estate agent named Kenneth Burrell Patterson. That's where she gets the name Patterson. But their marriage was short-lived, and the pair quickly separated, but never fully divorced. And since Isabel kept the name Patterson, that's what I'm going to call her for this episode. So, from now on, she is Patterson. During the 1910s, Patterson began her career in journalism, returned to America and landing a job at a paper called the Spokane Inland Herald, based in the state of Washington. Though she started off in the business department, her talent for prose was quickly spotted and she was transferred over to editorial department instead. Patterson then moved back to Canada, working with a newspaper based in Vancouver, writing drama reviews for about two years. While working, Patterson turned her attention towards literary pursuits and wrote her first two novels entitled The Magpie's Nest and The Shadow Riders. She began submitting to publishers by 1914, though her writings initially garnered little more than lukewarm reception. Shadow Riders was eventually published by the John Lane Company in 1916. Magpie's Nest was also published by the same company the following year, and they were moderate successes. By the end of the First World War, Patterson relocated to New York. 
Her career began to gather surprising momentum when a mutual friend introduced her to Burton Roscoe, the literary editor for the New York Tribune, later becoming the Herald Tribune. Though Roscoe did not have much love for Patterson at first, she was hired as an assistant and later became a columnist and a critic for over two decades. Her weekly column, called Turns of the Bookworm, established Patterson as an influential literary critic and tastemaker, as a person capable of the most fierce, piercing, and biting criticisms of a piece of literature. One contemporary reporter wrote of Patterson, She has more to say than any other critic in New York today as to which book shall be popular. One novelist, John O'Hara, admitted that he was very much afraid of Isabel Patterson, and I don't blame him. It's a real testament to Patterson's strength of character and intelligence that someone with nearly no formal schooling, few if any connections in the business, and no real literary reputation soared so high so quickly in the buzzing atmosphere of New York. And Patterson wasn't exactly living through like a boring time for literature either. Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald were writing as long as the Harlem Renaissance movement that was flourishing. At this time, Patterson's career mostly revolved around literature, working on her novels, little focus on politics. But eventually, the direction of politics began to disturb Patterson greatly over the years. On January 17, 1920, the federal prohibition of alcohol began, with over 1,500 federal agents being assigned to enforce the ban on alcohol throughout the country. Though this didn't actually affect Patterson at all, as a teetotaler, she still viewed it as a grave violation of individual freedom and choice. But the injustices of prohibition for Patterson were minuscule compared to what was around the corner. Thanks to her regular income at the Tribune, when the Great Depression hit in 1929, though she was hit pretty hard and lost a hefty sum in the stock market, she survived quite well. She stayed mostly financially stable. But the Great Depression was a cataclysmic event for other people. To give some idea and some numbers, in 1929 when the downturn began, and 1932 when it kind of ended, I guess you could say, worldwide GDP fell by nearly 15% according to estimates. That's huge. In response to the dramatic downturn, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt enacted the New Deal, an extensive series of programs, public works, financial reforms, and regulations that expanded the American government to an unprecedented size and scope. The American government was intervening more than it ever had before in the economy, a development many left-leaning and socialist intellectuals welcomed with open arms. But Patterson was appalled to find the vast majority of literary intellectuals fervently supported the New Deal, leaving her quite alone. Patterson was disgusted, and the New Deal acted as a catalyst to launch her new career into the arena of political writing. Before the New Deal, Patterson had voted for FDR due to his opposition to prohibition, and even voted for the socialist Eugene Debs because she admired his principal stance. But by the 30s, Patterson's public persona transitioned from a novelist and a critic into an astute political commentator. In her columns, Patterson advocated for a minimal government, while arguing against income tax, conscription, aggressive foreign policy, and the government regulating any part of the economy. By 1933, Patterson stated her beliefs quite openly, saying her credo was, liberty or death, no foreign entanglements, and the least governed country is the best governed. Patterson wrote that a lot of American principles is contained in two words, just don't. Much of the rest is encompassed by a suggestion of minding one's own business. Throughout her columns, Patterson hones and develops her ideas that she would later compile into her magnum opus. For Patterson, the state was not productive. It couldn't produce resources, and it relied upon taxing creative and productive individuals to sustain itself at their expense. For Patterson, 
The state is incapable of bringing about prosperity. When discussing the redistribution of wealth, she sniped, destitution is easily distributed. It is the one thing political power can ensure you. The managerial state does not bestow upon its inhabitants freedom or prosperity. Left-wing intellectuals and publications like the New Republic argue that liberty is not merely an absence of restraint, but a positive purpose. What the philosopher Isaiah Berlin would later call positive liberty. In response to this, Patterson wrote that freedom is just freedom from restraint. But getting her jabs in as well, she added, and what communism, government control brings about, is freedom from soap, freedom from shoes, and freedom from food. Patterson's columns show us her rapid transformation into a fully-fledged individualist from a kind of apolitical person beforehand. Patterson pulled no punches and fully expressed her vitriol for any form of collectivism. Patterson defended her dramatic tome by saying, tolerance is no virtue when human liberty is at stake. Patterson would later explain that instead of detracting from the power in private hands, the New Deal in reality actually centralised power in fewer private hands that would have ever been possible in a free market. According to Patterson, the winners of the New Deal were the inheritors of non-productive fortunes, the beneficiaries of fixed charges and endowments, and the recipients of public money. She said, they believe themselves to be moved by other principles, some candidly out for their spoils. Patterson was chiefly disgusted with capitalists, and that might sound a little odd, because she was a capitalist. But she hated people who lobbied for government favours and money. She lashed out in one letter, complaining that capitalists who relied on government support, if nothing else, I look forward to the pleasure of seeing them hang to lampposts. The problem facing America, Patterson explained, was our present difficulty is that our best minds, both big businessmen and intellectuals, have already got the political machinery dangerously entangled with the economic system, disrupting both. And now they're demanding that government should save them from what they've done to it. Ironically, Patterson was on a mission to save capitalism from the capitalists who had so happily accepted the New Deal because it benefited them. When World War II broke out, Patterson believed America ought to stay out of European affairs. But by the attack of Pearl Harbor, Patterson supported America's intervention in Europe, but not without criticism. Patterson was especially disgusted by Truman dropping two atomic bombs, killing over 100,000 innocent Japanese civilians. She was especially disgusted by the use of science to, and I quote, fry Japanese babies in atomic radiation. While the war unfolded in all of its barbarity, Patterson began to fear the fate of the Western world. To articulate why the West was worth preserving, Patterson wrote her magnum opus, The God of the Machine, published in 1943, the same year that Rand published The Fountainhead and Rosewater Lane published The Discovery of Freedom. Karl Marx, the father of communism, wrote that the handmill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. According to Marx's theory of historical materialism, any cultural or political expression a society has is what he calls a superstructure. But beneath this superstructure is a firmly technological base. Marx believed that our material conditions first and foremost determine our ideology. In Patterson's day, many anthropologists had very similar approaches to Marx and took on his ideas. But Patterson believed the idea that humans were conditioned by their environment to have no free will made little to no sense. Because it described a world, in her words, where human beings are nothing but protoplasmic dough baked in the mold of external influences. So Patterson poses the question instead, how do we even create the steam mill? She wanted to understand why some places flourished while others stagnated, and was there some sort of rule in history that we could figure out? So Patterson begins her analysis of why the ancient Romans became the dominant power in the Mediterranean. Now many people might guess that Rome thrived because it just beat all of its enemies, especially its arch-rival, the would-be superpower Carthage. But Patterson argues that this isn't really the full picture. 
Paterson explains that in the second Punic Wars between the Carthaginians and the Romans, Carthage had to one up on every military advantage for a while. They had the amazing general Hannibal Barca, who won every single battle, a better navy. The Romans were in absolute disarray. How could they lose? But they did. Paterson believes the answer lies in how the Roman government was structured. Hannibal Barca, the Carthaginian general, expected that when he marched into territories that the Romans had conquered, Rome's former rivals would join his side, but they didn't. Rome offered citizenship to loyal allies, which conferred numerous benefits. Citizens couldn't be imprisoned unless there was a specific charge, for example, what we would today know as habeas corpus. She also adds that the Romans were among the first to theorize and implement the law as an abstract set of principles with an internal logic. Instead of a judgment of a changeable individual, the Romans relied on a set of rules beyond the reach of man. And this is why the Roman historian Livy would say, Rome is an empire of laws, not of men. Patterson didn't believe power came from armies or natural resources or some random assortment of factors. Instead, she thought it was because Rome harnessed the productive energy of its people. Patterson's kind of like the inverse of Marx. Marx said that technology determines the ideas we think, but Patterson argues that ideas are the driving force in history. This is why Patterson is so compelled by America's unique history and values. For Patterson, the establishment of the American Republic represents a watershed moment in human history. And her argument doesn't stem from this idea of Americans being inherently better than other cultures or anything like that. Patterson explains that America was the first ever nation founded on reasoned principles, proceeding from the axiom that man's birthright is freedom. Because of this, America flourished, and other countries adopted the American political system of limited government. The result was unprecedented material progress on a scale humanity had never seen before. Take this for example. If a group of famous Romans had a time machine and visited Thomas Jefferson, they would see some new technology, yeah, but overall the world's relatively similar in the 18th century. The Romans and Jefferson both have large plantations of slaves, boats sit at night and write by candlelight, boats still rely primarily on agriculture as a form of wealth, they ride around in horses. But now imagine the Romans visited Patterson. There are no more slaves, and women just got the right to vote. Homes are powered by electricity and people travel by trains and automobiles. The world is starkly different. In fact, if Patterson sat down with ancient Romans, she could tell them about the time in 1912, along with a stunt pilot, when she set the record for the highest altitude flight by woman at 5,000 feet in the air. They would be completely flabbergasted, asking, how did you get 5,000 feet in the air? So how did this massive shift in human affairs occur? Patterson explained this phenomenon through a slightly odd metaphor that I personally think is a little clunky, but each to their own. She thinks of human society as a machine, and in this machine, individual people are what she calls dynamos. They create energy. But on the opposite end, the state is an end appliance and a dead end in respect of energy and its uses. Patterson believes that human history's success stories do not come from states flexing their muscles with armies and navies, but instead from individuals' energies being channeled and released, resulting in bursts of thrift, invention, commerce from free individuals. Patterson warns this system runs absolute security of private property, full personal liberty, and firm autonomous regional basis for a federal structure. In simpler terms, a representative democracy and a minimal state that does not directly interfere in individuals' economic lives. For Patterson, the state helps guide energy, but it can't create its own energy independent of individuals. This is why the ideas of communism and fascism are always doomed to fail for Patterson, because they put the inert state above the energetic individual. Patterson was not so subtly hinting at the New Deal and its cadre of supporters who knew that the state was the driving force behind progress. 
But if the state intervened and prohibited individuals' freedom, Patterson wore that stagnation and decline were almost bound to occur. Libertarians always argue that individuals would have happier, wealthier, and healthier lives if the state just backed off. But if this is true and based on the laws of nature, or at least some sort of observable facts, why are libertarians such a minority? Shouldn't it be really obvious this is the way we live our lives? Patterson answers this question in her most unique chapter called The Humanitarian with the Guillotine, where she argues most of the harm in the world is done by good people motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. Patterson believes that the vast majority of people are actually quite good people and not inclined towards harming others. Murderers and thieves are a minority, not a majority. Patterson explains that if you add up every single criminal act in the world, there's still millions of people who have been starved, killed, and imprisoned outside of that. So what's going on? Patterson writes that the power to do things for people is also the power to do things to people. And you can guess for yourself which is likely to be done. Good people... Humanitarians have a psychological desire to help others. But perversely, Patterson believes the ultimate goal of humanitarians requires that other people want something. They're in need. To help others, others must be in need. And thus the humanitarian, Patterson words, wishes to be the prime movers in the lives of other people. They want to play God. Patterson believes the best way to help others is through what she admits is kind of random and sporadic charity. But she argues that even if charity can alleviate all the suffering... It's a whole lot better than the dependency perpetuated by a large-scale welfare state. But also, in a free society, progress moves fast, and new inventions dramatically improve people's lives more than charity or welfare ever could. God of the Machine is not an easy read. As the libertarian Albert J. Nock advised, it must be taken in sips. But Patterson articulated some themes that are now commonplace in libertarian thought, the role of private property as a guarantor of freedom, and a very poor depiction of the state as a negative force in economic affairs. Fellow libertarian Rose Wilderlane wrote to Herbert Hoover that God of the Machine ranked among the best writings of Thomas Paine and James Madison. She emphatically stated that anyone who has read it comfortably has not read it adequately, and should read it again until he experiences an earthquake. Ayn Rand, of all people, who acknowledged very, very few intellectual influences in her life, wrote to Patterson, you were the very first person to see how capitalism works in specific application. Murray Rothbard and Robert Lefebvre were also dedicated fans of Patterson. But God of the Machine was not a commercial success. It was no bestseller. But those who read it were really enthusiastic fans, and Patterson was always willing to engage in correspondence with anyone who was interested. But she started to drift outside the mainstream, and she knew it. Increasingly, her radical political views alienated others, and this came to a head in 1949 when she was fired from her job after 25 years of work at the Tribune Herald. Leaving the exciting life of New York, Patterson moved to a farm in New Jersey near Princeton. And though she published a handful of pieces... Patterson generally refused proposed rates of pay due to her former position. She would never let her pride be wounded. She was able to live modestly but comfortably off her past investments. And of course, Patterson ardently refused to ever take any form of social security. But this doesn't mean that Patterson was not contributing to the cause of libertarianism. At the outbreak of World War II, anti-state writers like Albert J. Nock and H.L. Mencken found it increasingly hard to publish their work nearly anywhere. Nock would write that, I got letters from strangers urging me to come out against collectivism, I have to tell them there's no place published for me. Many who had libertarian beliefs felt isolated. It seemed like there was no real hope for any sort of organized movement ever established in such a climate of laudatory praise for the state. Patterson corresponded with many intellectuals, businessmen, and like-minded people to show them that they weren't isolated, and that there were other people who believed in these ideas. 
And though Patterson steered clear of attaching her name to any official organisation, her mentoring of various figures brought the nascent libertarian movement together. Though journalists like John Chamberlain inspired with Patterson, ultimately he was won over by arguments, with Chamberlain writing that, if it had been left to pulsimulous males, probably nothing would have happened. Indeed, it was three women, Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand, who, with scornful side glances at the male business community, had decided to rekindle faith in an older American philosophy. There wasn't an economist among them, and none of them was a PhD. By the time Patterson died in 1960, she was largely forgotten, sadly. While God of the Machine is still in print, it's not one of the more typical books that libertarians like to reference, like Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman or Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. But Patterson's columns, God of the Machine, and advocacy largely behind the scenes ensure that libertarianism will not recede into the ideological dustbin, but instead survive its darkest hour and emerge stronger than ever. Nock wrote that Rose Wilder-Lane and Isabel Patterson had shown the male world of this period how to think fundamentally. They make all of us male writers look like Confederate money. They don't fumble and fiddle around. Every shot goes straight to the centre. Normally there's a kind of stereotype about libertarians. Libertarians in people's minds are contrarian, 20-something-year-old men who like to argue a lot. But Patterson's biographer Stephen Cox writes that women were more important to the creation of the libertarian movement than they were to the creation of any political movement not strictly focused on women's rights. Though Patterson might not be a household name today, without her contributions as both a writer and mentor to disparate libertarians across the country, it was possible there would be either a much diminished or possibly no libertarian movement. She did teach Iran what capitalism was, after all. Her magnum opus, God of the Machine, established and popularized her core themes of libertarian thought. The importance of private property, a vision of the state as a creatively impotent institution, and lastly, a critical stance towards paternalism of any form of state action cloaked in humanitarian rhetoric. So, it's not exactly a very happy ending. Patterson entered life in obscurity. Her political beliefs caused her to become increasingly alienated, eventually losing her job for being too outspoken. It must have seemed kind of hopeless for Patterson to dedicate herself to a cause that she would never really see flourish. A pretty thankless job. It would have been much more comfortable to revert to writing her literary column and staying out of politics altogether and keeping her job. But that was not the nature of a person like Patterson, who wrote that, Freedom is worth whatever it costs. Thanks, Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.